0: I said to people, you don't even understand. We walk in at opening ceremonies carrying your country's flag. I had no idea that I was going to feel that way.
1: We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA, and this is Moving the Needle. Today joining us, really excited uh, to have a conversation with Dr. Jackie Rolls, uh, who is of course a CRNA. She's also a board certified adult nurse practitioner and board certified in non-surgical pain management. Uh, Jackie is a well-known leader and educator within the US and uh, the international level, and she's currently serving her fourth term, her fourth term as president of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists. Oh, by the way, she's also a former president of the, the AANA and a former interim executive director. Dr. Rolls is an associate professor of professional practice and director of the Advanced Pain Management Fellowship at Texas Christian University, Go Horned Frogs. She has earned the highest recognition awards from the AANA and the IFNA. Well thank you so much for joining Jake joining us Jackie here in moving the needle. I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time mm-hmm. and I'm excited that I was able to pin you down. Uh, you're sort <laughs> of a busy person. You got a little bit going on in your life. Just a uh, the, the the bio the I don't know the, the five sentence bio that I I did before this conversation uh, does even close to isn't even close to uh, encapsulating what you actually have done and what you are doing. I mean it's just a it's, it's, it's really impressive, uh, the amount of work and the amount of service that you have done for the profession. And I, I have to wonder, what drives you? Why are you so engaged? Why do you volunteer so much of, of your time? What about service is important to you?
0: That's a great question. And first, I, I think I've been very blessed in life. I, I do believe that your ability to be a servant leader also depends on timing and what's out there, what you're a good fit for. So I first have to thank the many mentors that I've had that really have groomed me and helped me to be able to use what I feel are my gifts. I have always, I guess, according to people that have known me for years, um, been a leader. I, I don't always look at it that way. I look at it as leaders are often facilitators and mediators and you need to lead by being a role model. And actually, sometimes I talk about leading from behind because you don't always need to be that point person out front, right? You need good people that will step up and help lead. And you can influence in a good way without always having to be seen as the main figure. And that's difficult for a lot of people to understand. They think they have to be the president of the AANA to be influential. Well, you don't. There's so much work to be done and we need people to step up and do work. And oftentimes the people that really have their heart set on being elected or chosen to a certain position, it doesn't always happen because there's so many good people out there. So I guess my desire to lead is I've just always felt that I'm so blessed. I need to get back. Anyway, I want to help make improvements. I want to help move things forward. I enjoy helping other people and I don't care if I get credit for it or not. I don't need to have my name on everything that we write or is published or that we have a hand in. And that's something when people ask me about leadership and why I do what I do, I always try to point out so that we can encourage a lot of people to get involved and you can feel good about what you do just in your own heart. It doesn't always, everything you do isn't always shown. You understand that very well in the position you're in. You do a lot of things behind the scenes that set up other people and initiatives for success. And we don't always get credit for it. And if you're somebody that needs to have credit for everything you do, it's going to be difficult. So we have to find that in our own heart, what makes us feel good and allows us to, to smile and help others move forward.
1: Yeah. I've reached out. We've had a a few conversations around, you know, you know, I've reached out to you, and and I think we've had a pretty candid conversation not too long ago. And I was talking to you about what it's like to be the CEO of this organization, mm-hmm. and you're in that unique position where you you were president of the organization, but you also, for a period of time, was the you were the interim executive director. I was. And and, and we had a candid conversation that I won't share all the details here, <laughs> but <laughs> what that what that was like, and and, and be in a role that is high profile. Yes. And, and there's no complaint in here. I, I, you, it's oh just, no. It's just, it, it comes with the territory and you have you've, you've told me this you've made, you've told me this twice, and I, and I think about it a lot is you know, it's almost in the context of well, you've got to make decisions when you're in these kinds of roles. Mm-hmm and And many of the decisions we make end out to be end up in the long term, being pretty darn good decisions. Some of them not not you know we're not they're not going to bat a thousand here. No. And your comment about I, I hope I hope you know what I'm talking about is that like you make I the did. best decision you can make with the information that's available to you at that time, and then you move on.. Right. Tell us a little bit about that philosophy and and how it served you in in your various leadership roles.
0: I think the hardest thing for anybody in a leadership position, especially when you're CEO, executive director of a big organization, is that you have a lot of people to answer to. Mm. You have staff that you're responsible for. You have the membership. You you have the board of directors that you're reporting to and that sort of structure. And in any other organization, when you are the face of the organization and the CEO or executive director to me is the constant face. Our presidents, they're great, but we change over every year. So we, the stability is in that CEO, executive director position, whether I'm talking about AANA or IFNA, you're not going to make everyone happy. Sometimes the decisions you have to make is good for one faction or best for that faction and not maybe as good for the other. And it's hard to balance that. And in order to stay sane, literally sane and confident in yourself, you do the best you can. I've had leaders from NBCRNA, COA talk to me about. Positivity and I am positive. I I choose to minimize the negative and focus on the positive. And I think that's where that sentence you're talking about. I was talking with a former NBCRNA leader who years after the CPC was so upset about the whole thing and had so much personal responsibility. And I said to that person, look, my philosophy is you do the best you can. With the information you have at hand you've got to consider time restraints so time talent treasury right your time restraints the talent you have to work with and the budget that you have to make a decision or to move an initiative forth you do the very best you can and you sleep fine at night then because you've done the best you can do and as you said most of them i feel like turn out really well in the long run but there are a few occasionally that six months later another piece of information comes in or something changes and it makes our decision not so ideal. All we can do then is stop, reassess, change if that's what we decide to do. But you you just do the best you can. And I've always felt that I've tried not to be an obstructionist. So my first inclination is not to say no. Even if someone comes with something that in your mind, you're thinking, Oh my gosh! I we don't have the the time. We don't have the treasury to to accomplish this. I don't even have the expert knowledge, content experts. I need to do it is never to say no, but to say okay. Let me look at it. Go back, do a whole assessment. Come back to the decision maker, which is usually your board of directors or whoever you're working with, is really going to make the decision and say. This is what it's going to take to do this. Now we can do this, but I've got to get content experts. I need this much time and we're going to have to take something off our plate Mm. because we don't have the amount of people that can do this at this time. So maybe we need to sit back and look at what is more important right now. We're going to have to reprioritize or sometimes simply when all of that's put out in front of the decision makers, they'll look at it and say, it's not worth the costs that it's going to take right now. Opportunity costs. That's how I try to proceed because I feel like too, if you're someone that always says no, 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 then you're seen as you're just being an obstructionist and you're not, you're not with it enough. You're not letting us explore. So I try to facilitate and say, okay, we'll take a look at it. But in the end, you're going to have to make a decision. What's more important to you? Mm.
1: Yeah. A couple of key takeaways there that I hear from you. And I try to model in, in my behavior is one is I, I never commit to anything on a phone call. Ever. That's a good idea. <laughs> so if someone calls me up and says, Hey, can you do this thing? I always say, this is intriguing. Let me think about it. And I'll go mm-hmm. back to you. And I always follow up. And I think sometimes as leaders, because we're problem solvers and sometimes we're people pleasers, many of us are, uh, and, and we do, truly do want to help people, right? We truly mm-hmm. do want to make things better. We, we overcommit ourselves. And then we find ourselves in a tough position. The other thing that I will call out, which is even more difficult, is this is to have conversations, real conversations, when there's opportunities that are presenting themselves about prioritization. And what my observation has been uh, with leaders uh, with boards is that it's, it's extremely difficult to stop doing something that's been going on within the mm-hmm. organization or within the business for some period of time. It's it's easy to say, well, let's just you know, well, let's prioritize and sunset some things. But you, these things exist for a reason, and everything you want to sunset every single thing, even if it's a no-brainer from a business perspective, will result in controversy Always. to some degree. And you and you have to be prepared for that.
0: That's where I think the communication comes in. Mm. The more we can communicate when we can. I realize sometimes there are strategic initiatives that we just can't communicate. And people want more information and you can't give it then. But when you can give it, you give it. So everybody can understand. Because I do agree with you that we want the best and I think everybody wants the best and everybody wants the best for our association and for our profession and everyone has their own opinions mm-hmm. and we don't always agree. And that's another important piece is I've said to some former leaders that will dif- they disagree with me. That's okay. I've been called a Pollyanna before. Mm-hmm. I said that movie probably nobody knows anymore, right? Because it was <laughs> quite a while ago, yeah. but I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I am realistic. But I try to find a way to make it better. And I think that's OK. That makes what we do more enjoyable. And we have to look at everything around us. We've got to bring in all the stakeholders and, or look at all the stakeholders. We have to consider everything. And we have to make a difficult decision. You know, leadership doesn't make you popular a lot of times. If you do the right thing, there's going to be somebody, at least somebody, unhappy with you.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And what I observe in really good leaders is that they understand that, trying to please everyone is a recipe for stagnation (laughs) and uh, or even worse, failure. And that if you're making the right decisions for the right reasons, you will be criticized. And in fact, if you're not being criticized, you're probably not moving fast enough. Uh,
0: Right, and to your point too, that sometimes it looks like we're not making the right decision mm -hmm. because we can't share all the information at the time too for people to understand decisions are made. And there are times that honestly, we will never be able to share all the information. Mm-hmm. That's the hard part about what yeah. we do.
1: Yeah, that's leadership. That's leadership. Well, speaking of leadership, so you have uh, an incredibly impressive career uh, within the AANA as a volunteer leader and as an interim executive director. How long were you interim executive director? About three, six right? months. Six months, okay. Six months, that that must've been a very interesting experience. The
0: hardest part of it, I don't know if you even know this, was the first three weeks of it. I was still AANA president. We had our annual meeting. Yeah. So trying to do... Those two roles at annual meeting, I remember just wanting to go up to my hotel room and lay down on the bed. I bet. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> but it was it was a difficult time. We had to make that that transition. We had lost John Guard suddenly. Well, I guess yeah, it was pretty suddenly. Yeah. And there was just a lot of emotion. There, were, we needed stability. The board of directors asked me if I would do it when we were talking about an interim position, and I said. I will. I thought my husband was about ready to kill me, <laughs> but you know, in the end he understood my yeah. work was a little taken aback. Cause I said, um, I need to be up in Chicago about three days a week, uh, but it worked. Everyone was great. We had a great board of directors. I think the staff was wonderful. We all pulled together and we knew it was only for a short period of time. My goal at that time was I felt the weight on, of the world on my shoulders actually for a little bit. And then finally I thought I can do this with the help of so many talented people we have. And my goal was to just not let anything bad happen (laughs) until we could get the new director in and still try to move some things forward. So we did, we prioritized, we worked together well as a team and we were able to keep the AANA, I think uh, pretty well functioning. Could it have been better? Probably there's a lot of people that will say yes, but I think together we, I had Jim Walker as president then, Uh, we, we already had a team together for interviewing team for the executive director search team. So we were in the midst of that anyway. And it, it just, it was what it was. It's a big blur to me right now, to be honest, because it's one of those things where you just pray every day and you get through it and we did okay. We, I think we did okay. Someone else yeah. may disagree.
1: Well, there's I, no <laughs> doubt. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been in this role for four years, so having that, that role and in a period of time, you're, you're wearing two hats uh, thrown at you must have been just an extraordinary. I'm sure you learned a lot about yourself. I, you? I did.
0: I learned a lot about myself, about the AANA uh-huh. and how well we're suited to do things because you know, we all have to work on that theory of if you get hit by a bus today, yeah. who's taken over tomorrow? Yeah. And we have been incredibly well set up at the AANA through the talent of our of our leaders, of our senior directors, of our department leaders, our CEOs. And, you know, John was in the hospital in in June. We had annual meeting coming up and he had done a lot of things ahead of time. The directors knew what to do. Really, when you have talented people, as you know, you just Mm -hmm. get out of their way. You give them the resources they need within reason, obviously, and you get out of their way. And then they come to you when they need something. So the AANa in my mind has been set up to be able to run for a period of time, pretty much by itself. If we have to,
1: no doubt. Yeah, and one of the things that I say, and I always, people kind of raise their eyebrows when I say this, but I really do mean this. Is it's my job to make myself obsolete?
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and
1: so, and and when when that happens, I'll go, and and someone else can come in because uh, I think this this perception that the CEO or this executive director should be calling all of the shots should be the final say on everything, should be involved in all these operational activities, I you think is, is really misguided.
0: It is, and you can't. You can't. There's not enough hours in the day right. to do that.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. So, okay, that's okay. Let's, let's, let's pivot. Okay. Uh, and let's talk about the work that you're doing with IFNA. I'm fascinated by how that started. You, your interest in international uh, nursing, international nursing anesthesia. What, what was the impetus behind that? What drives you? And what's been your experience there? I think
0: part of my big interest is my father was from Iran. So he immigrated through Ellis Island in 1954 Mm. as a resident for otolaryngology and was in New York at Kings County. I had a lot of international visitors in my home coming and going for years. When we'd go to medical meetings with my dad, there were a lot of of foreign graduates and very highly functioning, well-known researchers that we would kind of hang around. I grew up with going to meetings with them and their kids that we would go every year. I had a lot of good memories of that. And I think that gave me a good insight into different cultures and acceptance of different cultures and patience, and understanding how to work around communication issues. When IFNA was founded, you may know we only had 11 countries And Ron Koch was president when Hermie Loner came over to an AANA meeting in 75 or 76 in Detroit. We didn't even know there were other nurse anesthetists in other countries. Sandy Ouellette was involved from the very beginning. John Gard was involved. Ira Gunn did some work. So we had big leaders that got IFNA started. It was a huge compliment to me when Sandy Ouellette came to me and said, I'm going to be retiring. I can't do this travel, international travel anymore. And I have to speak with the AANA board about. A replacement and she had talked to a few people and she said, Would you be interested in that? Knowing my background that I had a lot of international travel, I had been around a lot of different types of um, people, different. I, I only used to speak French. I have to say, right now, I'm not very good at it, and I have to brush up if I go somewhere. And we kind of laugh because I always say in IFNA, what do we call someone that speaks one language? It's an American. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> yeah. almost everyone speaks at least two, if not three or four. Yeah. So I feel. Yeah. I am very fortunate that the international language of business is English. Mm -hmm. So I was interested. I said, tell me more about it. I didn't know that much about it. I hadn't been to a meeting. And she sat down and talked with me about it. And I said, I would love it if you think I'm the appropriate person and the board thinks I'm the appropriate person. I would love it. So she talked to the board and they asked me if I was interested. I went with her in 2009 over to the Netherlands to a, to a meeting and she was president then. And it was great. I fell in love with it. The people are so wonderful. I, I don't even know, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but there's no politics. There's a lot of support. There's a lot of kindness. There's a lot of grace and I've had Americans come to me after coming to a world Congress and say, Oh my gosh, it's so fun. There's not a lot of fighting. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a bad way for the AANa because we're involved at a different level, but okay. Ifna is it's 30 years old only last year, or 2019. And we, we have grown so much, but it's, it's a way to bring nurse and SS together from around the world. I love it. I love finding out what nurse and SS are doing around the world I love that the AANA is the role model and that we can be so helpful to practices around the world. It, it's been an amazing experience. I've loved almost every minute of it. I mean, to travel, people say, oh, you get to go to all these great places. That part's true. However, for most of the meetings, I'm leaving on Tuesday, flying all night, get there Wednesday, have meetings Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and have a 6 a.m. flight out on Sunday. Mm. So the fun part everyone sees is when we're, we always have a nice dinner. So you work yeah. all day. I mean, literally we're work, we're starting meetings at seven thirty in the morning and it's one in the morning, my time. And sometimes I'm the only one with that much time change. And literally you work all day till five o'clock and then you maybe have a half hour to go to your room and it's a very social group. So it's cocktail hour. Then you go to dinner and oftentimes we'll walk 40, 45 minutes to a dinner somewhere because, you know, that's how it is in Europe and, yeah. and other places even. We'll have a dinner. The dinners last four hours. Everyone's talking. It's our time together. It's the most wonderful thing and the most exhausting thing all at the yeah. same time.
1: Yeah. That's a, I always joke. It. Yeah, I mean, not to drill down on something that's irrelevant, but I always laugh. no, I tell people that I love my job. But I can't stand the group dinners because they go on forever and they ever. They do. Yeah, like you know, like a three-hour dinner to me does not sound like fun. Yes. I, well, <laughs>
0: and, you know, <laughs> dinners are long, lunches are long, and you yeah, know, it's kind of a break time, and it's yeah. a really good time to get to know people. I try to make sure we don't ever have assigned seats or anything, but I try to make sure I get to sit by different people and mm. get to know people better. When we have the small group, the elected board that meets in May, normally we just did a Zoom call and we moved it to November. We have 10 people, four officers, six at-large directors. It's pretty easy. When you have the full CNR, which we have 43 country members, two are associate members because they're not the majority nurses in their country, so they don't get a vote, but we still have a designated person that comes to our meetings. We want to share everything with them and try to increase the quality and safety of anesthesia everywhere. So we have 43. We usually have 35, 36 at a meeting that's a little more difficult at dinner a little more difficult but it's 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 a wonderful time and it's a good way everybody's volunteer same thing you know everybody's volunteer we have so much of that at the AANA so yeah. being able to go out relax have dinner talk to people it's a it's a highlight of the meeting
1: so tell me about what are the objectives what are you what's what's ifna moving on what direction is it going and what are you excited about
0: i have a really big excited announcement and well, first of all, let me just say, IFNa started out really just, we were trying to reach out, find nurse and anesthetists in other countries, bring everybody together for communication, right? Just meet each other yeah. and then kind of see what practice is like everywhere. So the early years, I like to say we were focused internally on building our foundation, on building some financial security, which apparently back in about 2004, I think the due structure changed and we were almost bankrupt. Since then, it's been much better. And Then as we got a little bit more financially stable, I would say maybe about 2012, we were able to join other organizations, send people to meetings more often. We used to just go to the ICN meetings as an affiliate, which is great, but now we can do the G4 meetings. Now we can go to the World Health Organization's Global Initiative on Essential Emergency Surgical Care Meetings. We can Mm -hmm. afford to do that. Those things have been really good because we've been able to network with the World Federation Society of Anesthesiologists, with some of the other, the World College of Medicine. Um, we've networked with a, a lot of other advanced nursing practice people around the world, and it has been very helpful. We were able to focus outward, I said, mm-hmm. at, at that time. We we're able to collaborate and work together toward goals of, of healthcare. So, a prime example in 2015, the World Health Organization passed a resolution that talked about strengthening the surgical system and surgical capacity because we know there's 5 billion people in the world that don't have access to timely, affordable, essential surgical care. And the most of that's in the low and middle income countries where we can really make a difference with nurse anesthetists. We just have to make sure everyone's educated appropriately. Those things are now what we're working on more is outward and how can we help And they were focusing in 2015, looking at surgery as a part of universal health care. So the goal is by 2030, 80% of the world would have access to affordable, timely surgical care. We're still a long way from that right now. I don't know we're going to meet 2030, but we're trying. We know there's a huge manpower problem in anesthesia. Governments used to focus on surgical capacity and putting it on the agenda was big. 2015 was the first time actually surgery and anesthesia were moved to a political agenda for governments to look at and say, you need to, you need to allow money for this. What happened? They did start allowing money, but it was for surgery. So I had friends of mine, for example, that I've met through my work that are heads of schools in Africa who said, okay, we just graduated 27 surgeons, but we don't have 27 anesthetists. Hmm. So we've been trying to raise visibility of we've got to have anesthesia providers also doesn't do any good to just have surgeons. Part of this has been really exciting for me lately, especially because the International Council of Nurses started working on advanced practice guidelines for nursing different nursing roles. So in 2019, I was sitting in a meeting in Singapore when they were reporting out on nurse practitioners and clinical nurse specialists. There were some things that needed to be strengthened, even since I, I am an adult nurse practitioner. I did that for my pain practice. So sitting there, I was listening, saying, wow, no way can they define a nurse anesthetist by themselves. There aren't any nurse anesthetists on the advanced practice nursing networks there. We've been going to ICN meetings since 1989. Our executive director, Pascal Rod, I think spend almost every meeting. So there's a full meeting every two years and an advanced practice nursing meeting in between. And I've been going to meetings since 2014, I think, 2012. I've been to three of the advanced practice uh, network nursing meetings. And the one last year, of course, was postponed because of COVID. But I talked to ICM leadership after that meeting and said, we need to be recognized as an advanced practice nurse. If I kind of read the material they had at the time, I would have said we were categorized as a specialty nurse, Mm -hmm we know what we do is an advanced practice nursing role. I wrote a letter to them, Rick Hinker from HVO and our G4 Alliance representative from the a also wrote a letter to ICN. I got a very nice response. I got a call from their nursing director of policy, David Stewart, who's actually located in Australia. And he said, the board really was taken by your letter and especially the last sentence. And I didn't remember what the last sentence was at the time, Uh but he reminded me that at the end I said, if nursing does not recognize us in our rightful role, we're going to lose our nurse anesthetists as they align with medicine. And it's Mm -hmm. very true because especially in many countries overseas, we've got nurse anesthetists going to WFSA educational workshops, which is fine. It's great. But Mm -hmm. we need it from our things from our perspective. We Mm -hmm. need our own representation. So a couple months later. I got a letter from ICN, this was late 2019, asking us to partner with them to be the content expert to develop advanced practice nursing guidelines for the nurse anesthetists. I was thrilled. Put together a task force, a global task force with representation from the US, Europe, Africa, Asia. We started working, uh, I'd say beginning of of the year in 2020, Becky Madsen from the AANA. She is our chair for that. And then Betty Horton ended up being a co-chair as we moved forward. We finished those guidelines the end of last year. And it was a lot of work, believe me. Doing things internationally takes a long time because different languages. English isn't their first language. We had to send things back to associations to read. The ANA did a draft for me. Practice committee did a great job. Thank you to the board for their questions and their approval of it. We've moved on. We now are ready to publish. They are coming out next week may 25th is global surgery day Mm -hmm. so these guidelines for the advanced practice role of the nurse anesthetist will come out in seven languages next week i feel like it makes me want to cry i mean it's probably the biggest work i've done ever and not to discount anything through the aana but this is global we need recognition as an advanced practice nurse on the global level we need ICN recognition of us so that ministers of health, parliaments, governments understand and recognize us. WHO will recognize us because ICN is a consultant to them. They do recognize us, but we've never had anything officially. Mm-hmm. This document goes through scope of practice, education, ideas for the future. It's It even has things we don't have in the United States, like recommended full prescriptive authority for nurse anesthetists.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm exciting. so excited about this. Yeah, that's really cool. What do you think that this means for the future of international nurse anesthesiology? Where where do you see things going?
0: I think we are going to grow by leaps and bounds. Right now, we did a manpower head count in late 2019 for the WHO actually, for their first uh, state of the world's nursing report. And we have about 163,000 anesthetists in our member countries alone. We know there are nurses giving anesthesia in many other countries. Unfortunately, there's not an organization for them and an organization joins IFNA. It's not individual membership or they don't have someone that speaks well enough English to be a representative, but we still reach out to them when we get their information and send information and and try to get contact where we can. But there's a huge role for increased use of us internationally. We just want to make sure that the nurses giving anesthesia are truly nurse anesthetists, that they have education in anesthesia and aren't just being three months in the operating room in South Africa somewhere or sure. South America, and then being pulled into the ORs.
1: Yeah. Well, Jackie, where would our listeners find more about the work that you're doing at, at IFNA? Or should they go? There's
0: information on the website. It's actually IFNA-SITE. There is information on there. We're trying to keep, keep it more timely one of the best things to do is come to a world Congress. Mm. So the next world Congress is May 2nd through 5th in Shebenik, Croatia, which is a beautiful area by the sea. If you've never been to Croatia, it is a very affordable country. Mm. You can literally before or after the meeting travel up and down the coast. And there you will see really anesthetists from all over the world. And there'll be a lot of different anesthetists giving lectures What's going on in their country, and it's just a great time to come together and learn more about what's going on. And for the US anaesthetists, literally, you are rock stars mm-hmm. because of our practice autonomy that we enjoy with, we they will people say to me that you know the ANA is leading the world in education, certification, recertification, accreditation. We want. We need to be able to share that. And you'll make friends. And all of a sudden, you'll be like me, where you wake up in the morning and you have WhatsApp or you've got a Facebook messenger. The first meeting I came home from, I woke up to one from Tunisia. And you will just start your dialogue. And it's very rewarding, very rewarding to work with, with all these anesthetists.
1: Yeah, and I can speak from experience. Uh, the first and only uh, international conference I've been to was uh, the IFNA in, in Budapest. And that was uh, a, a really wonderful experience for me and my I brought my family too. And so uh, I could not recommend the the, the meeting uh, enough. It's been, it, it was I, I said
0: to people, you, you don't even understand as a country national representative, which, like I said, I am fortunate to be for the AANA. We walk in at opening ceremonies carrying your country's flag. Mm-hmm. I, the first time I did that, I almost cried. I had no idea that I was going to feel that way, but I did. And I said, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in the A or the nurse anesthesia Olympics or something, uh-huh. yeah. and I'm getting to carry the flag in for my country. So cool. It's, it's emotional. It's fun. It's a fun meeting. And I can't, I can't recommend it enough. So uh, registration's open. Our website is uh, WCNA 2022. If you search that, it'll bring up the website right now. Topics are on there. Individual speakers are not with COVID. We kind of are a little bit behind, but we'll have those up. And as soon as we get those, then I'll be coming back to the ANA to work on CE because we usually have about twenty mm-hmm. to twenty-four CE for that meeting. We've been working for almost four years on a history book. It, we wanted it to come out in late 2019 for our 30 years, but because things were already difficult, it was took a little longer. Then COVID hit, took a little longer. But we're in the final stages of editing that book. Sandy Ouellette, Betty Horton, and I are the editors. We have 41 of 43 country, no, 42 of 43 country histories. It is going to be a one-stop shop for global nurse anesthesia. And it's got everything from the beginning, how we started. It's got all of our standards. And we just received permission from the International Council of Nurses to reprint the guidelines in the in the book. So we are publishing that book soon. Hopefully it'll be out by the end of June. We're only charging 20 US dollars. IFNA underwrote took out of reserves. We actually had some reserves because we didn't have as much travel for the last year and a half. We also had half price dues this year for our country members, which I think is fabulous. We were able to pay for that book, which is quite a lot of money. And thank you to the ANA who let us meet at the office. We went through some of the archives, things there. It's been incredible, but it should be out this summer. And it's, like I said, everything you want to know about global Nurse Anesthesia is in one book, and we're hoping that that will help. We have some battles going on right now in France to be recognized as APNs, and they went on strike last Monday. Probably said there's going to be two or three more days of a strike. Last time, it took four days before surgical volume was affected in that country. So they're planning to keep striking until they're recognized as advanced practice nurses. We have title protection uh, language. I've written a lot of letters, the Netherlands, South Korea, and also in Burundi. Mm. So even though it seems like, I don't know, there's a lot of fun to what we do. There's a lot of work to what yeah. we do also.
1: And serious work.
0: Serious yeah. work. Because if we can raise nurse anesthesia around the world, it's only going to help us here in the United States too. Aneste- global anesthesiologists tell me, I, I'm on a manpower committee for the World Federation site of anesthesiologists. And we just sent out a new survey to count manpower and I'm on an anesthesia competencies committee. If I had one global anesthesiologist say, well, gosh, the AA and CRNAs are outliers. And I said, no, we're the role model.
1: Hmm. I like that. Well, that's a wonderful way to end our conversation today. And hopefully we can have another one
0: fairly soon too, uh, To too. Love it. Thanks for the opportunity
1: thank you so much again, Dr. Rolls, for uh, this wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you to the listeners uh, for once again, listening in to Moving the Needle. If you like what you're hearing, uh, like us, share us, and please tell your friends and colleagues uh, to check into one of our upcoming episodes. Thank you.